Okay, we are live. Welcome everyone to the first session of the first class of Drisha's Elul's month. We have several other classes starting this week. They all promise to be wonderful and we hope to see you at as many are feasible. This class right now is Admission of Guilt, Confession and Repentance with Rabbi David Silver. Confession, Bidwi, plays a central role in the Yom Kippur service. We will study four great biblical narratives in order to gain a deeper understanding of the role of confession in a redeemed life. Rabbi David Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha Institute for Jewish Education in New York and Israel. Rabbi Silver received ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elkanan Theological Seminary. He is a recipient of the Covenant Award for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education and is the author of the Passover Haggadah, Go Forth and Learn, and for such time as this, Biblical Reflections in the Book of Esther. We ask that those of those who are joining us here on Zoom, please stay muted unless we are having an open discussion period just to minimize background noise. And if you would be comfortable joining us on camera, we really appreciate the feeling of being able to look around our learning community and see who else is here, almost as if we're in person. Um, if you're joining us on Facebook, feel free to participate by posting comments into the comment section there. On Zoom, you of course have the option to type into the chat. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello. There isn't really an interactive element, but that's your choice. We will be using Safaria to share reference text for this class. If you'd like to follow along on your own, you're welcome to use your own Clemish. Um, Rabbi Silver, take it away. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome everyone. Uh, yes, the we're approaching the Yamim Noraim which culminate with Yom, Yom Kippur. And um, Yom Kippur is a day of repentance, day of tshuva. And one of the central features of the Yom Kippur service are confessions. Uh, in fact, the common practice is to say what's called vidui, confession, uh, in the Shmona Esrei of Erev Yom HaKippurim, that is Mincha, so the, towards the end of the Amida, before we step back, there are the confessions. And the common explanation of why we are saying Vidui and Mincha, which is prayed early on Yom Kippur, before the meal, is because uh, there's a concern that with the meal, we'll lose focus, etc. There are other explanations as well, but we'll lose focus. So therefore we pushed the Vidui to before the meal, but that actually the appropriate time to make the confession, first confession, is as Yom Kippur is beginning. And in fact, it is such a very common practice to recite an additional private vidui just before Kol Nidre. And there are set, several different ones that are written. The Ibn Ezra has a very beautiful one. <clears throat> there are others as well. And so Yom Kippur, you enter into it through confession, and there are confessions in all of the five services of Yom Kippur. And in particular, what's very striking is that in the Musaf service of Yom Kippur, where we are, among other things, reenacting the service of the high priest, the Avoda, that's actually reenacted. It's a reenactment, very unusual for us to do that. And in that reenactment, on three different occasions, we are saying, we are reciting, that is the Chazan recites what the Kohen Gadol said on Yom Kippur 
as he brought the special Yom Kippur sacrifices. That is, on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol brings his own sacrifice for himself, his family. And then there's an additional sacrifices for the people. And in the Torah, the sacrifice for the people, one of the two key sacrifices for the people, which is the, the scapegoat, the Sa'il Lazozeo, there the Torah says, and we read this Yom Kippur morning, that Aaron Samach Aron Arosh Hachai, that Aaron should place two hands on the head of the living goat, the scapegoat, Vitvada Alav, and should confess upon it at Kol Avonot B'nei Yisrael, all of the sins of the people. And then the high priest sends this goat out to the wilderness and it bears the sins of the people. That's what the Torah says. So the Torah uses the word Bechitzvada to confess what we commonly call Vidui, that the high priest confesses the sins of Israel in conjunction with the scapegoat sacrifices, and that goat is sent away bearing the sins. So then we have an explicit mention of Vidui of confession. But what's interesting is that the rabbinic reading, the Mishnah and the Gemara, which follows in Tractate Yoma, reads into the text two additional confessions that are not explicit in the text at all. But the Gemara reads into, Mishnah reads into the, the text, the idea that when Aaron brings his own sacrifice for himself and for his family, and the Torah mentions that twice in chapter 16, that in the, both of those two times repeated, that it actually uh, suggests that Aaron confesses. First, he confesses for himself and his family, then he returns to the same sacrifice, and he confesses for himself, his family, and all of the Kohanim, all of the priests. So in effect, there are three different confessions that the high priest makes on Yom Kippur, which is at the heart of this reenactment of the service of the high priest. So you see already from the Torah itself and from the rabbinic understanding, the central place that confession plays on Yom Kippur, what we call Vidui. The Rambam actually, in his Mishnah Torah, where he invented something called Hilchot Teshuvah, the laws of repentance, 10 chapters. And he writes in the beginning, there's one mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to repent. And the Rambam says, and the mitzvah is to confess. In other words, the, the act of repentance is a formal act of repentance. And his sentence around confession. And he cites the rabbinic understanding of verses in chapter 30 of Dvarim, that's the chapter that we read just before Rosh Hashanah every year. And it talks about uh, the mitzvah which I give you. It's not too difficult. It's not in the heavens, Loba Shamayimi, but rather it's very close to you. To perform it in your heart and with your mouth. And the one of the interpretations of that passage that the mitzvah refers not to the Torah in general, 
but refers to repentance. This mitzvah of repentance is not too difficult. Repentance is possible, says the Torah. The fact that the Torah says it's possible to me means that it is difficult, but okay, it's not in the heavens. It's near you, it's close to you, with the, in your heart and with your mouth. And with your mouth means confession. So the confession plays a central role on Yom Kippur. It is bound inextricably with repentance. And I was, I'm hoping in these four sessions to be able to reflect upon confession. And confession actually are figures in various biblical texts and there are different elements to confession. That's the main point that I wanna get across that confession has many different pieces to it, many different settings, many different significances. It's not just one thing. So we're gonna focus on four texts. And I thought the first text to focus on is one of the central texts of the Bible, obviously, the story of the Garden of Eden, story of Gan Eden. And it's a story not so much about confession, it's a story more about the lack of confession. The Torah in the second creation narrative, which begins in the second chapter of Genesis, there the Torah says that chapter one deals with God's creation of everything, heaven and earth. And chapter two says this is the story of the creation of heaven and earth. And it describes not the creation of everything, but the creation of one very special place. in the Garden of Eden. And God takes God's creation, the human, the earthling, and places the human in this special place. The description of God's actions in chapter two is very different from the description of God's actions in chapter one. There is a sense of in chapter one, a transcendent God who creates without effort, with language alone. In chapter two, the Torah uses verbs of action. God is planting, uh, God is bringing, God is placing, etc. So the picture of God in chapter two was much more human, using language typically used to describe human behavior. And God creates in that chapter a helpmate from earthling. God creates another being. And the first earthling names this being Isha. For the Isha was taken from Ish. So in effect, the earthling calls this creation woman and at the same time calls himself man. Until that point, he's earthling. So man and woman then are created. Woman fashioned from man in the biblical account. And then God is planting all kinds of trees in this garden. And we have instruction given to Adam in chapter two of Genesis. The Torah says that God placed Adam in the garden to work there and to guard it. Chapter two of Genesis, verse number 15. And God commanded, Vayitzav Hashem Elohim al Adam Lemar, the God commanded, the typical name of God in the, in the uh, God Aden story in the second creation narrative, Hashem Elohim. God commanded Adam saying, you may eat of all the 
fruit of the trees of the garden. But from the tree, which has the knowledge or which brings the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So there's an explicit command. You're permitted all, all the food is permissible, but this one tree is forbidden, the tree of good knowledge of good and evil. This is prior to the creation of the woman. That's an important point. Prior to the creation of the woman, the next verse says, it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make a fitting helper for, for him. So that's, and then we have the creation of, of woman, which comes next. First though, God brought, formed out of the earth, all the beasts, all the birds, and brings them to Adam to see what Adam would name them. Adam gives them names. And then it says, after Adam names them, no fitting helper was found. So it sounds like in describing, in describing what each one is and giving each one its name, one might say in the very act of naming, to uncover something central about that thing. The naming then is a description of what it is and having named it, having spoken, Adam discovers that none are fitting for him. So then uh, in the next verse, uh, God then builds, fashions from the side of Adam, another being, and brings this creation to Adam. And the following verse, Adam says, Zotapam, this time, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this one, Zot, shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. So Adam's, one gets the sense of great joy. The triple result over here, there's real joy to find the appropriate person for oneself. And the very next verse says, therefore, Hence, a man leaves his father, mother, leaves his family, clings to his wife, they become one flesh. Okay. We're not here to study in depth the story of the Garden of Eden, but this is the creation of the helper, the woman, and this follows the instruction not to eat of this tree of knowledge. And now we come to the continuation of the story. In the continuation of the story in chapter three enters the serpent, the snake the shrewdest of all beasts. And it would appear that the snake is even shrewder than the human. And the snake, uh, snake begins the conversation with the woman. Did God really say you can't eat any of the tree of the garden, any of the fruit of the trees? And the woman says, in the second verse, the woman says, no, he creates a God with permitted to eat the fruit. However, this one particular fruit we can't eat from the tree of, and we can't even go tigubo. Perhaps it means to touch. I think it means more than touching. I think it means to misuse in some way. I'll leave that aside. Lest we die. Lest we die, which is what God had said in chapter two, not to her, but to Adam. 
And the snake says, you're not going to die. That's not the reason for the prohibition, but rather God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the snake having said this, raising this possibility, and suddenly the woman uh, begins to think about this tree in a different way. Suddenly it's seen as a, a delight to the eyes, good for eating, tov, remachal, desirable as a source of wisdom. She took it and she ate the fruit and she also gave some to her husband and he ate. Here the translation doesn't pick up actually. And she gave to the husband, imam means literally with her. It sounds like he's actually there, he's by her side. And he eats as well. So we have over here a violation of the one and only command the human is given. Clear. And now we come to the human response to error, to sin, to mistake. Their eyes in fact were open. And the first thing they perceive is that they were naked. They covered up their nakedness with fig leaves. And they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. The Ruach Hayom, the time of the time of the day, it's not clear what time that is. Here they say the breezy time of day. The man and his wife, Adam they hid. That's actually very significant. Interesting is actually that the Hebrew is not a plural, it's a singular. They both hid, but the Hebrew text is Adam hid together with his wife. So the focus is on Adam. It's not on ish, it's not on the ishto. It's on the ish. They hid before Hashem Elohim among the trees of the garden. It's interesting where they hide, because they took of the trees of the garden. They took of that tree, and the tree that they took of is described as being in the midst of the garden, the toch, and that's exactly where they hide. One might say they go back to the scene of the crime, and they hide it. And now we have this encounter. So God called out to the to Adam. It doesn't say to them. God spoke to, speaks to Adam. And God's first word, Ayeko, where are you? We can't actually know in the written text. We see the word, but we can't hear the word. We can't hear the way God says that word. And in the at, within that tradition, there are three different readings of Ayeka. Where are you? Could be a question. His, God's creation is, is missing. Where are you? The child is missing. Where, where are you? Where are you? I, I don't see you. Where are you? Concern where you are. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is Ayeka, like you might say in this slang, where are you at? It's not a question. God knows where Adam is, but Ayeka is more, where are you? What are you doing? Well, what's going on here? Already is implicit in the Ayeka criticism. 
And then Kalir, based on Midrashim, has a different of Ayeka. Aleph Yud Kafei is the same letters as Echa. Ayeka, how could you do this? What a tragedy. So there's different ways to read that one word. We don't have the music, but there's three different ways to read it. But in any event, Ayeka is an invitation to speak. It's a question. Maybe it's a rhetorical question, which is a critique. But at the end of the day, rhetorical or not, it's a question. It's an opening for Adam, and God addresses Adam to speak. And let's see what Adam says. Vayomer et kolcha shamati bagan. I heard your voice. Kolcha shamati. It says they heard the voice of God walking through the garden. So where, I, where am I? I'm hiding from you because I realized that I'm, I'm naked. I thought it was inappropriate to stand before the divine when unclothed. So Adam is responding to the ayeko in the narrow sense. Where, where, where are you? And I don't see you. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm in hiding because I would be inappropriate. So God says, Another question. Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the fruit which I commanded you not to eat? Notice there are three questions. Where are you? Who told you? Did you eat the fruit? So God has one question after the next. Question is an invitation for a response. And now we have Adam's response. Adam was violated. The one and only command taking the forbidden fruit, which can be seen in many different ways, that violation. It can be seen as disobedience or rebellion against God. It can be seen as theft, taking that which is not yours. It's an act of theft. It can be seen in multiple ways. And this is Adam's response now. Adam's response is first the woman. The woman, that you put at my side, she gave me from the fruit, from the tree, and I ate. So, what we have over here is, I would say, a non confession. Not only a non confession, because Adam does not say, I ate of the fruit that you commanded me not to eat. That was God's statement. Did you eat of the fruit I commanded you not to eat? I told you not to do it. Did you do that? And Adam could have said, I did do that. I explicitly violated your explicit command. And there's no excuse. And I have nothing to say. That's not what Adam says. Adam says more than that, of course, less than that, which is, doesn't respond to what he did. Yes, the last words is I ate. But the woman that you placed by my side, in other words, A, she made me do it. And secondly, that you placed by my side, which suggests not only is the woman culpable, but God, frankly, you're responsible as well. Because the very one you placed by my side to be a so-called helper, she told me to do it. Maybe he figures 
Well, if she tells me to do it, it's got to be okay because you placed her by my side. And there's something else here very interesting about that you placed by my side. That you placed by my side suggests perhaps, look, you put it by my side. You know, I didn't request anything. This was your idea. It's not good to be alone. You put it by my side, which is not exactly Adam's response at the end of the previous chapter. At the end of the previous chapter, there's tremendous excitement. Zot apam, this time. Zot, three times the zot. The tremendous excitement to find someone who's your soulmate. That's the excitement in chapter two. And suddenly here, the one you foisted upon me. So what we have over here is a lack of confession. And not only a lack of confession, but blaming the other. It's the other's fault. It's not my fault. And what I point I'd like to get to today, we'll see how far we can get is, even if it, even if it may be true that others share guilt, that does not exempt me from confession. That's a very, very important point. And as we'll see, this story here is one of these central stories in the entire book of Genesis. In the great book of Genesis, this is a central story. It's the lack of confession. It's the lack of taking responsibility. Okay, so that's Adam. And it's tied into something else, I believe. And that is that what the Torah emphasizes over here is not just the lack of confession, but the Torah emphasizes over here the fact that Adam and his wife are hiding. The hiding is part of the story. They are hiding amongst the trees of the garden. They're hiding in the very place where the sin was committed. Because they're actually in the place, this is an additional point, they're actually in the right place for, for repentance. The right place for repentance is you're going back to the same place. So they have an opportunity here, find themselves in that very place to repent. But instead we have the hiding one might say the cover-up. In the case of Adam, it's the Isha, the first word, the Isha. She's the one. She's the one, the one you foisted upon me. She's the one who gave me, I ate, of course I did. And now God turns God's attention to the woman. What have you done? Notice that when God speaks to the woman, God does not say, speak about violating the commandment. Because actually the woman herself was never commanded. We saw the chronology. The first God commanded Adam, and then God said, I will find a helper for, for him. Turned out that this helper was not much of a help initially. But in any event, what have you done? Those are very important words that appear and reappear throughout the book of Genesis. Throughout Sefer Breshi, what did you do? Now her opportunity to confess. Because she knows of the command. Though she was not commanded, she knows of it. She says to the snake, no, we can eat all the fruit. Just this one tree we can't touch. But Tomer ha'isha, hanachash hishiani Here they translate, duped me, tricked me, hishiani. Notice, however, the play on the word hishiani and the word isha. 
So Adam blames Isha, and the Isha blames the snake, Kishiani. So the two are very similar. Each one finds someone else to blame. And of course, it's true. Everything the woman says is 100% true. The Nachash convinced me, duped me, tricked me, or whatever. However, from the Torah's perspective, apparently, it's not an excuse. Because God will visit punishment upon the Ish, and upon the Isha, and of course, upon the Nachash. And this is the important point. It doesn't actually exempt the person. Because at the end of the day, they both were commanded a know of God's command. So the violation of God's command cannot be excused by someone else's uh, malfeasance. Okay, the snake told you to do it, but I told you not to do it. So that doesn't excuse you. The idea of the idea of responsibility is something central to this book, and Torah takes extreme position about responsibility. Extreme. Okay. The snake, the snake is not asking me questions, by the way. The snake is told, God knows, but God, by asking the question, gave us humans opportunity to address our mistake, to confess. What we have in this first story is a failure to confess. One might say that the primal sin of the Bible is twofold. One is taking the forbidden fruit, a violation of the command, taking things that don't belong to us. That's one thing. But there was an opportunity to, to, to redress that. The opportunity was, and God offers us an opportunity. Why are you hiding? Did you eat that fruit? And that was our opportunity to say, I absolutely did, and there is no excuse for it. That's not what the human says. The human says her fault. And frankly, God, maybe your fault as well. And what about the woman? Snake. So here we confront in the very first story of the Torah, the failure to confess. And this will be a fundamental and central theme of the book of Genesis. Now I'll stop here for a moment. If there are any comments or questions, I'll be happy to hear them. I see a question from Jennifer Malvin. Why doesn't God ask the snake why, why he did it? So I try to address that. God knows the snake is represented in the story as, as evil. And I would say more than evil, and this, I can't get deeply into the story of the Garden of Eden. I focused on the story because it's the first story of lack of confession. But God knows that the snake did it. And the snake is represented as actually God's enemy. What the snake is trying to do is to destroy God's plan. God has a plan in the second creation narrative. And that is that there'll be a special place within all of creation where God and the human being can interact. That's the plan. And the snake resents this. Because the snake doesn't see the snake as simply one of the other animals. After all, the snake is wiser, more clever than all of the other animals. So the snake sets out to destroy God's plan, to create separation between God on one hand 
and God's favorite creature, which is the human. The snake resents God. So the snake's fundamental attack is upon God. And yes, it involves the separation of God and the human. And uh, I think I must say that the end of this creation narrative in the battle between God and the snake, I think the scorecard reads snake one, God nothing. Because at the end of the story, the snake has succeeded. The snake, yes, is cursed by God. The snake lives a life of living death. The snake is always present because God says to the humans, the snake will always be there. There will always be this enemy we have to confront. So there's no point to try to talk the snake out of it. You can't talk the snake out of anything. This is the war between the and the perhaps almost eternal war between the snake on one hand, evil on one hand, as represented by the snake, and God on the other, and that the snake has instantiations within the Bible. The primary one is what the Torah calls Amalek. Amalek essentially is the snake. Amalek is the ongoing and ever-present evil that really exists in the world. Not only inside every person has a possibility, but for the Bible, evil really exists out there. It's not only to be internalized. So therefore, there's no point to uh, ask the snake too many questions. Yes, Sandra. Rabbi, Rabbi, Silver. Rabbi Silver. Um, yes. So uh, uh, thank you, by the way. And I, into um, some you time. What are the time is? Who's speaking? Yeah, now? Sandra. Rabbi. Yeah. Rosie. Uh, Rabbi. Sandra, go ahead, please. Okay, thank you. Um, Rabbi, well, we, we talked about, you mentioned the fact that three times um, uh, uh, Adam is ex exultant and says zot, and he calls her zot, yeah. and zot, and yet, and God, when he addresses her, says mas zot asit. Yes, very um, nice. we, Excellent point, yes. I, I was going to ask if, if it's, uh, are we supposed to note that Yes, and is, is he and is he is God using the zot? What we know from things you've taught us, and you've repeated it this morning, that when he asks questions, since God knows the answer, that it's an implicit, some sort of implicit chastisement or criticism. So, if he is saying to her, calling her the zot, but in a totally different tone than than Adam did, yes, of he's course, going, those two things are connected. Yeah. It's a literary link between the two stories. Good point. Hundred percent. Thank you. Yes. Excellent okay. point. Okay, I was going to say about the snake. It becomes positive later on with Moshe and all the matot. It's always a snake appearing, but for good very often. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I would uh, formulate it that way, that the snake right. is for good. It is true. Transform. Uh, in, that in the case of the Nechash uh, HaNechoshet, that the Nechash uh, HaNechoshet, the, the snake there, the serpent, is... When you look at the serpent and you're bitten, you are cured of your of your of your illness. That is true, but I think the nechash and nechoshet requires a very careful study. I think that the Torah is making a different point. I don't think the snake is ever good in the Bible. I don't think it's true of the snake in the nechash and nechoshet, though there it is a remedy. It's only not true of nechash amoni, the primary enemy of King Saul. Nechash in general is a, is a negative. Uh, sometimes right. negative forces can be used in a positive way, typically not. But I think that question about the Nechash and the we have to put on the side. Okay. Uh, my focus is not really the snake here. My focus is on the failure to confess and what that means. And the first point is 
that there's a failure to confess on the part of the human, and it's tied in in the Chumash with this idea of uh, of uh, hiding, 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 concealing, concealing from the other. We'll see who the other is. In this case, God. You can't really conceal from God, but the attempt concealing from ourselves, which is the point I'd like to get to over these four sessions. Uh, but this is the this is where it all begins. It begins with the story here. Okay, but a, okay. sense, a sense of boldness, Nachshon, Ben Aminadav. A sense of what? Boldness. Bold. Yeah. Bold. Nachshon. Nachshon has the name in it. Yes, it's a sense of, I mean, if your point is that to be able to confront our failings requires a certain courage or a certain conviction, I would agree with that. I think that's, it's not easy to admit error. And we look for excuses. The human being is always looking for excuses. One of the excuses is it's so-and-so's fault, even where it's true, even where it's true. Uh, you can blame the other. There's always mistakes made by many parties. That doesn't mean that I haven't made a, a, a mistake. And to be able to confront that, uh, if one wants to move forward, that's the beginning. Okay, so this is the first story. Now, what I'd like to do is to uh, look at today, to begin to look at how this story plays out in the rest of Sefer Breshit. And I think it plays out in many stories, actually, in many stories. I'll give a few examples of this. Let's say, for example, the question that God asked the woman, what have you done? Is a question that will appear several times in, in this great book. For example, we have the story of chapter 12. That's when Abraham goes down to Egypt. He says to his wife, Sarah, uh, there's a famine in the land. Let's go down to Egypt. It's a dangerous place, he says. And if they see you, you're so beautiful. I've come to see how beautiful you are. Uh, when they see you and they know that you're my wife, they will kill me and they will take you. So therefore, please say you are my sister. Chapter 12, verse number 13. That it go well for me on your account. And I remain alive thanks to you. When they come down to Egypt, in fact, the Egyptians see that this is a beautiful woman. And Pharaoh's uh, officers, Sarai Paro, praise, uh, praise her to Pharaoh. And she's taken by, to Pharaoh's house. Abraham went well, he's given all kinds of gifts. In verse number 17, God brings plagues upon Pharaoh, great plagues against Pharaoh and his house, on account of Sarai Eshet Avram, on account of Sarai, Avram's wife. And Pharaoh called, summoned Abraham. What have you done? Those are God's words. What have you done? Why didn't you tell me that's your wife? Why did you tell me it's your sister? I took her for a wife. Now here is your wife. Take her and leave. 
And Pharaoh puts men in charge of him and they send him away with all his possessions. So we have here a question. It's asked by Pharaoh, who is no saint, because in point of fact, it's clear that there is no consent over here in the story. He simply summons and takes her. So Pharaoh is no saint. However, the question that the reader has apart from Pharaoh is what kind of behavior is this in the first place? After all, he is endangering his wife. And second of all, or maybe first of all, maybe he shouldn't go there in the first place knowing how dangerous this place is. And third of all, as the Ramban says, maybe he shouldn't leave the land to which God directed him. So Abraham has acted in a way which is problematic. Maybe there's a good answer, or maybe there isn't. But it's certainly a good question, because every reader of the Bible asks exactly the same question, what did you do? And here what is striking is, he doesn't give any excuses, but he also doesn't give any, any he doesn't confess either. He says nothing. He understands Pharaoh's not really asking him a question. Maybe he feels he doesn't have to justify himself before Pharaoh. What we have over here is a silence. We don't have a, a, a statement otherwise. We have a silence. And the question in the silence that the reader has in chapter 12 is, is it a silence because shtika kahoda? You know, you're right. Everything you're saying is true. I have nothing to say to your question. Notice the questions. Mazot asitalanu, question. Lama, Lama lo higanatum, Lama, question number two, Lama amarata achotihi, question number three, like God, Pharaoh has three questions, take her and leave, but there's no response. And one can question whether Abraham fully understands what he's done wrong, especially since we turn a few pages and we come to Genesis chapter 20, he seems to do exactly the same thing. In chapter 20, he travels to the south, chapter 20, verse 1. And in verse number 2 of chapter 20, he says about his wife, she is my sister. And there too, Avimelech, the king of Gerard, the Philistine king, takes Sarah. So we have a repeat performance of chapter 12. There's no confession in chapter 12. There's no statement in chapter 12. So it's unclear. Because when you make a statement, when you confess, one of the primary ideas of confession, a verbal statement, is clarification. To clarify, one might even say more than clarify, but to give it a life of its own. It's not just inside me. By verbalizing, whether I verbalize to God or perhaps verbalize to another person or in front of another person, uh, it gives it a certain reality. And what you have over here, and it's actually I, striking really, what you have over here is once again, the same behavior. One might have thought that Abraham uh, would have learned from the first story and even more striking, when we study, those who studied with me together these stories, we all remember, we should all remember that in chapter 17, God said to Abraham, Sarah, your wife, will produce the covenantal child. So 
she, as of yet, has no child. So, and there's another promise of a child in chapter 18, so it's very striking. In any event, we have a repeat performance, and we look further in the chapter, God once again intervenes. God says, return this woman, she's a married woman, and Abraham, this, her husband is a prophet, he'll pray for you. And Avimel gets up early in the morning, and he summons Abraham, just as Pharaoh summoned Abraham. And now we have in verse number nine, by Yomelol, me'osita lanu. What have you done? Once again, the same language of the Garden of Eden story, me'osit, mazot osita lanu. In the case of Avimelech, he repeats it. Actions that should not be done, you did. And the next verse, which is, We notice over and over again the verb to do. And what is very striking is, and I want to make this point, emphasize this point, that in effect, in the story, Avimelech, who is no saint, God said to Abimelech, return the woman or I will kill you. Abimelech said, what do you want from me? What kind of God are you anyway? Would you kill even a righteous person? Sadiq? After all, I have clean hands. I have a pure heart. God says, I know, I know how pure you are. That's why I'm telling you to return them. And if you don't do it, I will kill you. You and all that you possess is not the way God talks to righteous people. So in point of fact, not only is he not righteous, but the, the deed, the act of chapter 20 was done by one person only, that's Abimelech, he takes Sarah. Abraham didn't, in a narrow sense, do anything. He said, by Yomer, he spoke, he didn't do. So Abimelech is a faker, that's for sure. But, and this is the important point, that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant that the other guy is wrong, phony, a faker. But what he says actually, is true, not that he did anything, but it's true there is a severe misbehavior over here. And in fact, he's given Abraham a chance, not that what he says has any effect on Abimelech, zero, but he's giving Abraham a chance to confess, to say, you know something, I can't, I can't figure out why I did this, I'll never do it again, I apologize to you for putting you in danger, and frankly, I must apologize to Sarah. It's the second time. I'll deal with her separately. And I stand before God and saying, I am guilty. But that's not what he says. He has three different reasons. And there even is some truth to them. But the point is, it doesn't matter. I thought it was a dangerous place. They would kill me, which is true. Of course, then why go there? She really is my sister from the father's side, not the mother's side. Okay, she's also your wife. And we do this every place we go. Wherever we wander aimlessly, we do the same thing. These are hardly valid explanations, justifications. But the point is, not that they're not fully valid justifications, the point is that there's another statement that Abraham could have made, but does not do. And therefore, the Abraham story can't end in chapter 20, of course. By that, I mean, of course, Sarah hasn't given birth, Isaac's not born, all of that. 
but the Abraham we encounter in chapter 20 has a deeply problematic side because the sin actually, the crime is the primary sin, is the primary sin of non-confession. Okay, this is a second story. Now, so we have two consecutive stories, consecutive tied together, chapter 12 and chapter 20. Let me take one more story and then I will take comments and questions and then we'll get to the critical story for our purposes in terms of confession. Again, I wanna make the point that the accuser, not God, but the accuser, whether it's Pharaoh or Abimelech, is hardly a virtuous human being. That's for sure. But it seems to be not relevant. It's not relevant to our study. And it's not relevant, I think, in the Chumash. Chumash doesn't care about that. But let's go to another unsavory character. And that's the story of Jacob in the house of Laban. Jacob runs away from home, having taken a blessing that was his father had intended to give to his brother Esau, having tricked his blind father, and Esau threatens to kill him. So Yaakov runs away, and he runs away for the second purpose of finding the appropriate partner, the appropriate spouse. And then, Jacob has a very difficult time in the house of Rabban, basically is a crook, a thief, a fraud, and all that, that's certainly true. And Jacob then is able to, stays on and manipulates the flocks of Rabban, becomes a wealthy man. And he sees in chapter 31 that Rabban looks at him differently. And the family looks at him differently. And he hears them talking. And Jacob is frightened. He hears God's voice. He takes his family, he takes his possessions, and he runs away. He runs away. When he runs away, literally steals away in chapter 31, steals away. Chapter 31, verse number 20. And in the um, previous verse, in verse 19, we are told that Rachel steals her father's trophim, her father's idols. So Rachel steals the idols, and Jacob with the next verse steals the heart of Ravan. He leaves without telling him he is leaving. Ravan finds out and chases after Jacob. Before he encounters Yaakov, God warns Ravan, don't say anything to Jacob, not good and evil, not tov and not ra. Say nothing to Jacob. I wonder if that tov or ra would doesn't remind the reader of the Eitzadad Tobara, reminding us of that story. And Lavan says to Yaakov, what, let's find the verse. Lavan says to Yaakov, verse number 26, Vayama Lavan Yaakov, Me'asita, Me'asita, what have you done? What have you done? We hear God's voice in the garden. What have you done? You stole my heart, you carried away my daughters like captives of the sword. And the next verse certainly reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Here they translate to flee in secrecy. Adam said, I hid. And Laban says to Yaakov, It's interesting that here it's clear that the Torah is going out of its way to use the word. 
Loma Barachta, why did you run away? Why did you flee? No, Loma Nachbeta Livroach. So this is once again, Melasita. It's an opportunity to say the truth. Now the truth over here is complex. The truth is that Lavan is a crook. The truth is that Yaakov was afraid that he would never permit his daughters to leave. All that is true. And, and Lavan is a phony. But the point is that what we have in the response is problematic and in two ways. Right. In two ways. First of all, one way, in two ways I think are connected. First of all, he doesn't say the truth, which is he did, in the words of the Torah, steal away in the night. Or maybe it was the morning. He steals away. And remembering that he got there in the first place for taking a blessing that was not initially intended for him. So it reinforces a misbehavior of the previous story. And there is something about the way he's functioning, the stealing, the manipulation of the flocks and all of that, which is problematic, which Yaakov does not address at all. That's number one. But the second point is when Laban said to Yaakov, why did you steal my gods? I understand you want to go home to your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? And Yaakov's response to why did you steal my gods is with whomever you find them should not live. Whoever stole them should die. Uh, recognize, we'll get back to that word this week or next. Recognize what is yours and take it. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the trophy. And now the point over here is the following. That on one hand, Jacob does not know. Absolutely does not know. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, what Yaakov might have said is something different. I don't think anybody stole. I know nothing about the theft. Nothing. But of course, I am the head of the family. And if somebody in my family stole it, that person is responsible, and so am I, because they're part of my family. I didn't know it, but you, but you can hold me accountable for that. And I stand before you with a complete confession. If someone stole it, I am guilty. Not just the one that stole it, but I am guilty. And in point of fact, that's not what Jacob says. So what we have over here is, I would say, a failure to take full responsibility. Now, someone could make the argument, maybe not, maybe the Torah doesn't require that. Maybe the Torah thinks each one is on his or her own. If Rachel stole it, she's guilty. And Jacob said, whoever stole it deserves to die, and Rachel will die. She dies in childbirth, not so long after. But, and this is the but, but there is yet another story. Before I get to the other story, let me just stop for a moment and ask if anybody has any comments or questions here at this point. Rabbi Silver, I was noticing that, that all of these stories are stories of taking. And the word kalakach is used in the first two stories, well, the first three stories, Ganeiden, the Aparo story, and the Abinelach story. Here, the word ganav is used 
which is a stronger form of lekicha, but it's a, a fascinating point. Yeah, it's a further it's a further link. Um, it's a further link between the stories. You're of course correct. It it is a further connection. It's very interesting how that first story. I mean, what it actually I think gets us to think about is this story plays out through Sefer Breshit. And the fact of the matter is that um, you begin to wonder, I mean, I thought about this for years, the degree to which the story of the Garden of Eden is a foundational story for many, many, many things, not just for this, but it is truly a foundational story. As I said, many, many years ago, all paths will lead to Genesis. And um, something to think about. But yes, it's all about taking, all about taking. Thank you for that comment. Anybody else? Ozzy had something to say? Noah, there's a comment by Ozzy, I think. I did. I'll, uh, Might be on Facebook or something. You see that? Yeah, you want me to read it yeah, out read loud? It. or read it. I Okay, so yeah. um, the lack of confession is also on the part of Uban, who refuses to take responsibility for how he treated Jacob. Of course, that's 100%. But the point is, there's no confession on the part of Baban, there's no confession on the part of Abimelech, and there's no confession on the part of Parol. Of course that's true. But my point is, the Torah doesn't care about those people. It's a given that pharaohs are no good. It's a given that Abimelech is no good. It's a given that Laban will always be Laban. He doesn't interest us. What interests us is Abraham, Jacob. These are the key players in the book of Genesis. Jacob is Israel. That's what interests us. And that's what interests the Chumash, the ability of the human being to change. The core story of Genesis, you have to pick out a core story, I would say, is Jacob becoming Israel. Is Jacob's wrestling with the angel. So what interests us is the ability to, to transform, the ability to change. The Torah suggests it is possible, as difficult as it is. It's clear that it's difficult but it's not impossible either. And that is the, uh, and the Torah sets a high bar. So of course, and my point is, the fact that Lavan or Avimelech or Paro is no good is not the point. I would say quite the opposite. The very fact that Abraham speaks in chapter 20 in the language of, of Avimelech is, 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 is problematic. The fact that Abraham has all his excuses and so does Avimelech just reinforces the problem. It never solves the problem by saying the other person is also bad. The other person made mistakes. Um, that's not the way to go. That's not the Torah's way to go. It's not our tradition's way to go. Our tradition is to say, it's my mistake. And that's what Yom Kippur is all about. There's always reasons and there's always nuances. But at the end of the day, take responsibility. In the case of Jacob, he is the head of the household. And therefore, when something goes terribly wrong, he's the head. And the only thing you can say when there's a mess are three words, chatati, oviti, upashaiti. That's true if you're the head of the household. And it's true if you're the president of the United States. There's only one answer here. And that is my mistake my bad, my responsibility. There's no other appropriate way. Nothing could be more clear in the Chumash than that. It's about as clear as you can be. 
And in Jacob's case, he actually doesn't even know about it. Rachel steals the trophim. That's true. But to know it had trophim. But the Chumash already connects those two things. But he ignored Yaakov with the wave of Avana Arami. And of course, it's his household, it's his family. And now we get to the story which underlines this point. And that is, the story appears later in the book of Breshit, critical story. So we won't have a chance to finish all this now, but we'll start with it. We have 15 minutes today, and next week we'll continue. And that's the critical story. The last part of Sefer Breshit, I'm skipping over some things. But the last part of Sefer Breshi, this will lead us into next week, is the story of Joseph. And the brothers have attempted to kill Joseph. They throw Joseph into a pit. First, they want to just kill him straight out. And Ruvain says, we can't kill him straight out. Let's throw him into this pit. Ruvain's, Ruvain's intentions are to save Joseph. But the brothers don't know that. And he says, throw him into the pit. This way we won't be killing him. He will die in the pit. He's in the desert with no water. He will die there. But we didn't kill him. We simply caused his death. And for Ruvain, that's a critical distinction. For Judah, however, later in that chapter, it's not a critical distinction. Judah, they see the band of, of, of traitors coming in the desert on the way to Egypt. And Judah says, why should we kill our brother? There's no profit in killing our brother. So for Judah, we're killing our brother and there is uh, a better way. Let's sell him. And then either before either they sell him, or according to the Rashbam, which seems to be the plain reading, other people come in the interim before they get a chance to sell him, and they pick them out of the pit, the Midianites, and they sold them to the Ishmaelites who bring him down to Egypt. That is the story of Joseph in Egypt. And Joseph's amazing rise to Egypt, that's not our problem here, but Joseph becomes the viceroy of Egypt and, and, uh, and the brothers come down to Egypt to, uh, to get food. There's a terrible famine once again, and Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get food. Joseph recognizes them. We'll see of this next week. I wanna make one point over here. Joseph recognizes them and he begins to uh, deal with them very harshly. That's found later in chapter 42. Uh, Jacob sends the brothers down, chapter 42. Keep going down, further down, chapter 42. Let's find the verse. Yeah, right there. So he early, just a little before that, he accuses them of being spies. Joseph recognizes them and accuses them of being spies. Let's see, that's chapter 42, verse number, um, verse number, Seven, Joseph recognizes them. He speaks to them harshly. Why are you here? To get food. And Joseph recognizes his brothers. We'll get back to that other word. The word we've been focusing on this morning so far is the word to do, a sita. But there's another critical word as we move forward in Genesis. And that's the verb lahakir, to recognize. He recognizes them, they don't recognize him, and he begins to speak harshly to them. And this begins a series of stories in which Joseph uh, manipulates events. He initially uh, threatens to put them all in jail. He takes one brother hostage, Shimon. He sends the others back, but he puts their money back into their sacks. 
And then the brothers finally come down with Benjamin. And later on, and this is a story I want to focus on just a few minutes today, and we'll pick this up again next week. And this is when the brothers come back to Egypt and they go back to Joseph's house, they return the money they found in their sacks. And Joseph invites them into his house to eat in chapter 44. Um, actually invites them to eat in chapter 43. And then in chapter, and then in chapter 44, he instructs the head of his household, his steward, to return all the money and to place in the sack of the youngest one, which is Benjamin, his, his, his silver goblet, a goblet that he presumably uses to divide. Because in the previous story, he sees them all in the, in the proper order. They're amazed. How does he know who's the older, who's the younger, etc.? And he has a goblet. So he places the goblet in the sack of Benjamin together with their money. And they, they, then they leave and they're all in their merry way. They have their food, etc. And shortly after leaving in chapter 44, uh, he instructs his steward to overtake them and say to them, why did you pay good with evil? You took the goblet of my Lord. He, he divines with it. You did evil. And the, the steward overtakes the brothers. Chapter 44. Steward overtakes the brothers. And they, he says what Joseph had told him to say. And the brothers respond in verse number seven. By your love, they said to him, why do you say these things? Your servants would certainly not assault. We would certainly not do such a thing. After all, we even returned the money we found in our sacks. So how would we take money? If we're returning money. You think we'll steal money? It's a kabachome, right? Whoever with whomever is found, the goblet should die. Whoever the goblet is found with us should die. And we too will be slaves to, to, to my Lord. And this is the important verse for our purposes. The role important. And the servant says, no, no, the one with whom it's found will be a slave and you're all innocent. You're innocent. So what did the brothers say? The brothers say, listen, we think we would never do such a thing. But if, if it's found with one of us, okay, that one bears a primary responsibility. But well, we're also guilty. We're one family. We're responsible for each other. Exactly what Jacob did not say. And notice that the two stories are essentially the same story. Someone leaves a place, right? And having left the place, takes with him an object that represents the place. In the first instance, it's Trafim. Remember that Lavan himself is called a Menachesh, Nichashti. So it could be that the Trafim are used to divine, which would make it a precise parallel. But even if you don't want to go there, I think you can go there. But even if you don't go there, the Trafim of Lavan and the Gavir of Joseph, with which he divines, are parallel. In the first instance, it's Rachel that took the Trafim. In the second instance, it's Rachel's son, Benjamin, who was accused of taking the Gavir. He didn't do it. But Joseph, 
who knows the family well knows it's something he could have done. He might have done it. That side of the family, right? There's something about that side of the family. But notice the taking of responsibility. We're all guilty, not just the one that took it. And this is only the brothers. This is not the head of the family. And of course, they hasten to take all of the bags to the ground as we continue. And what happens? They search and they, and they search and they find it, of course, in Benjamin's sack. They all tear their garments. And then Judah speaks. Judah is singled out. And Joseph says to Judah, and here we have our verse. We can write it ourselves. What have you done? Don't you know that somebody like me practices divination, which could mean you think I'm not going to find out? Or why would you take this? The very thing that I use for my craft, my divination, either of those two possibilities or both. And now we have Judah's statement. Right? Could have said we didn't do it. They didn't do it, actually. Could have said they didn't do it. Could say many things. Could say nothing. Could be silent. He doesn't say that. What can we say? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? Nitzada is the reflexive form of tzadak, to justify. There is no justification here. God has found out our sin. So Judah goes way beyond. He says, we're all equally guilty because he knows the truth of this particular crime. We're all equally innocent. He knows they didn't take the money. And he knows that the Gavio, Benjamin did not take the Gavio. But he's confessing in any event. And the point of the confession, of course, and we'll get to this next week, because he knows that actually they are guilty. They're not guilty of this particular crime. But this particular crime is part of a larger narrative of which they are all guilty. And actually the primary ones that are guilty are not Benjamin. Because it would appear from the biblical text that Benjamin was not involved in the sale of his brother, Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin being brothers from the same mother, full brothers. The other brothers having the same father, but not the same mother. So Judah says, and we'll get to this next week, God has found out the sin of your servants. We are all guilty. We're all guilty, including the one who took the Gavia or he didn't say took, one with whom the Gavia is found. In other words, he even distinguishes perhaps in the verse, when it comes to us, God has found our sin, which means that God has found our sin, we are guilty. When it comes to the one who took the Gavia, the one with whom the Gavia is found, which means actually it's found with him, so what can we say? He's not really guilty. We're really the guilty ones. So here we have an interesting confession. The specifics of it may not be true, but the deeper point is certainly true. And the point of the confession is, it's a confession of that which, which is part and parcel of a deeper understanding of the crime. 
what, what confession actually allows us to do is to clarify. I would say to clarify and to get a fuller understanding of what we did wrong. That's the idea of confession. To put it into words, to put it into some kind of reality, which we then can look at as separate from ourselves. And when it's separate from ourselves, we look at it differently. If it's inside ourselves, it's very hard to get a handle on something. When it's verbalized and separate from ourselves, we can then try to come to terms with what does it actually signify? What is, what is it actually about? And here the key word, of course, Joseph says to them, no, God forbid, no, God forbid. He'll be a slave. Only the one that took it should be a slave. You go to peace to your father. And of course, afterwards, we have Judah's great speech, where Judah argues that he should be the slave instead of Benjamin, because after all, he took responsibility. This will lead us to next week about confession. But let me just say one last word, and I'll take comments. And that is that the key word in this verse, Judah speaks, is the word matzah, to find. God has found out our sin. We are all guilty including the one with whom the goblet is found. And the word matzah is a very important word in the Joseph story. Uh, because if we assume that actually Joseph was not sold by the brothers, if we assume, as the plain reading of the Torah suggests, that he was taken by somebody else, the brothers don't actually know where Joseph is. In fact, the term that's used to describe Joseph almost all the time, three or four times, is the word enenu. He's, he's missing. He's missing. He's enenu. When someone is missing, it's the obligation of the community to try to find the missing people. That's the obligation. A soldier is missing. You search for the missing soldier. A child is lost. You search for the missing child. In point of fact, what is striking about the brothers is no attempt to find Joseph. They don't search for him. They don't look for him. So it's the failure to search, actually, which is part of the problem. And that's part of Judah's confession. Of course, all these things have happened. It's Judah's understanding. It's Judah's interpretation, which began earlier in the Torah. We'll start this next week. Try to understand why these things happening to me to what extent can I see myself as part of the problem? I'm not the only source of my problems, certainly not. But to what extent do I see myself as part of the problem, as part of the cause? And that's what confession is about. It's about trying to understand my role in the problem. My role because of what I did wrong, my role because I'm responsible for the community because I'm, I'm a leader, because I'm a member of a community, a member of a family. So that's where Judah's great confession and the power of it is precisely when you line this up in terms of all the other confessions or lack of such. So next week we'll focus on, come back to Judah, spend some time on Judah and to another key word in the, um, in the biblical narrative, which begins with the lack of confession in the Garden of Eden. I'll take a couple of minutes for comments or questions, then look forward to continuing next week. Rabbi Silva, I wanted to refer you to chapter 22, uh, 42, 
verse uh, 20, 28 um, in the story of Yosef and the brothers after the first incident with the money in the sack and finding the money in their sacks. It says, And he has a habit in mind. Oh, yes. I have it in mind for next week. Yeah. I have it in mind. Exactly. It started earlier and other things started earlier as well. But as Simba says very well, Mazot Elohim It says only one of them. It says one of them opened the sack and found the money. And they say, what has God done to us? And to us can be read in different ways. Uh-oh, we're all going to be blamed. Or it can be seen as a kind of confession. What is happening to us? And as we'll see next week, I think that reading is a very good one for other reasons as well. And we'll come to another critical word in the story of, of Genesis, which is all about confession. And then the, the, uh, after that, there are two stories I want to look at about different modes of confession. One of the issues with confession is, it, is it private or is it public? And I wanted to talk about that, the public and private confessions, and there are other things to speak about as well. Now, if anybody has any other comments or questions, you can send me email, it's dsilber at risha.org. So if any comments or questions, happy to do my best to respond. Thank you as always, Rabbi Silver, for a fabulous class. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We truly appreciate having you as part of Drisha's learning community. As Rabbi Silver said, there are always more classes. We have three other classes beginning this week. You are welcome to register at uh, our website. The link is in the chat. We look forward to seeing you in one of those classes or in this class again next week or both all of it, whatever works for you. Please be well and see you again soon.